All right, young people, since you're in your seat, you won't be able to see all of these little things. But I will put some of them up on the screen. Now, you're all familiar with seeds, right? How many of you are planting seeds right now? Some of you guys? Some of you planted them back in January, right? Because you know this, this hot weather is coming. Well, my wife planted some stuff back in January, and this is what it looks like now. So you can see, you know, actually this is bigger now. This was like a week or so ago. This has actually gotten bigger. But as I was out there the other day, I, I do this every once in a while. Maybe it's childish. I lay down on the ground, and I look up at a leaf, and then I consume the leaf. And I'm laying there, and my little boy, Michael, comes up, and he begins to eat all the leaves as well. And I am amazed every time I look at one of these leaves, if you, of course, recall how small these seeds are for lettuce, for instance, and you look up into the sky, and you've got that piece of lettuce there, and you think to yourself, one lettuce seed is probably one of those little squares in there, right? One of those little sections. And look how many sections that produced out of one seed. Now, that, that's only one leaf out of one seed. I mean, you've got the whole plant. And I'm thinking to myself, that's more than 50, 60, or 100 fold in my own little garden there. And as I was uh, thinking of that, I'm thinking of years ago up in Walla Walla. This is a train depot up there. And I'm thinking of how years ago there was a family that lived up there, one of which would go around taking pieces of literature, and when people would get off of that train, he would hand it to them just hand out literature like it was seed everywhere. And for quite a few years they did that until part of their family moved to Gladstone, Oregon. And what did they continue to do? They continued to hand out literature like it was seeds. And then eventually one of their descendants who passed away this week handed me a piece of literature. I mean, you think about the original ones who were there. They were touched by somebody else, and you go all the way back to Jesus, really, and how he touched lives, and it goes down through time, and it make, basically makes us here. And we know it's more than 50, 60, or 100-fold for us to be sitting here today. In fact, I still remember one of the pieces of literature that my grandfather gave me. It was called the Marked Bible. And I remember when he first gave it to me, I shoved it under the bed, and then I was in a state of confinement years later, and I got out of that. But before I got out of that, he emailed, he emailed me that same booklet. It talked about all the beautiful truths of creation. It talked about this loving mother who marked this Bible with beautiful texts for her child, and one of them was the Sabbath. And so I think of this train depot, and I think to myself, somebody influenced those individuals on the Hagee side of the family to even stand out there and brave whatever criticism they got to hand out literature. And then everywhere else they went, they did the same thing. And the biggest thing was, what I saw on that side of the family, was that they would always live it as well as share it. That's why Genesis says, the earth brought forth tender sprouts, the herb yielding seed after its kind. They showed me the heart of the Creator long before I even knew Him as my friend. And Jesus Himself comes along years later and says, the seed that God sowed years before in the creation of this world, it's representing something. It's representing the Word of God. All of us would be sitting here, young and old, would not be sitting here if it wasn't for the Word of God. 
So that's our living parable lesson. We'll tie it into the sermon later on. But just when you go out to your garden and you pick that piece of lettuce, look up in the sky and think to yourself, that all came, I'm just that little section came from one little seed. And be childlike like our young people. Munch it down, love your greens, but realize God has multiplied so many ways his love to you in your life. Father in heaven, I pray for our young people, some of which are here today, and I know some are home because they're sick, and I pray that you will send your blessing upon them as well. I place them in your hands. I pray that their childlike faith will be contagious to us and that we will learn from them as much as we think we're teaching them. Thank you so much for your love. Put a hedge around them. Help them to grow up to be the people you'd have them to be, Lord, all the way into the new earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine being Paul and having traveled not by car, plane, or some other public transit, but by boat and on foot? Sometimes he would hike, there's records of 14, 15 miles in one day, and to get to places to share the gospel. I've looked at his missionary journey, at least the maps that they reconstruct it with, and I'm amazed at how far he got in the period of time that he had to do it in, all the way from Jerusalem. You can see these other maps as well, but all the way up here to Philippi. Remember how he got to Philippi? Remember why he went to Philippi? I mean, these Macedonian-type people up there. Why would he go to that group of people, of all people? And you look at Philippi, this, this port city, this city over here near Neapolis, and as you look at these different cities that he reached, he had to be compelled by God to go into those cultures in that day and in that time. And I think God is still compelling us even in this day. If you remember the account, it's Paul later on. He's under house arrest. And he still, I can imagine him thinking back to how he ended up at Philippi, of all places, years before. Philippi, a place where he plants a church, and that 10-year-old church is sustaining him while he's locked up in house arrest. We find records of how he's thankful for the giving of different believers. And as he's thankful, he writes in the book of Philippians 16 times, though he's homebound, if you will, he's chained there, he's got guards in front of him at times, and yet he keeps on receiving the fruits of his labor years later. Now Paul, as you look at him in the book of Philippians, he's got this huge support system. He's got this huge joy that seems to be overflowing him, writing about it 16 times like I mentioned. And in return, he writes, he writes back to the Philippians. You remember the story, right? Of how he came to Philippi, how there was this dream, this vision that he had, and this person from Macedonia appeared to him and said, come over to us. Well, now here he is writing this letter years later to them. It says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, so Timothy's with him, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Philippi, that place where years before he had planted that church, that place where years before the, the dream had brought him there, that place where years before... The Holy Spirit said, no, don't go to this town. Don't go to this town. Go over to this town. That place, Philippi. And what does he have at Philippi by the time he writes here in Philippians chapter 1? He's got the saints there. He's got the elders and the deacons there. He's got this structure that's set up there to help the work continue to move forward. And it's actually flourishing during a time of persecution. But imagine being the Philippians now. 
So transfer yourself from Paul, who's reminiscing back and saying, 10 years ago, wow, and they still keep encouraging me, and I feel so joyful. Now imagine being the Philippians, receiving that letter from that, from that pastor who mentored you, who encouraged you, who, like for instance, you find individuals by the river shore who he had led to Jesus. Imagine being those people receiving this letter. And he says to you, grace to you and peace from who? From Jesus? Well, from both the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We typically look at grace and peace from Jesus, and that's true. But notice how he is content with the idea that it's not just Jesus, it's the Father as well. He knows the Father. And he knows that, yes, in the Old Testament, the author of Shalom was the Lord, but he also knows that in this time and age, after the cross, it's the Father and the Son. They are up in heaven. They are united. They are sending their grace and their peace upon his people. His grace the Father and the Son saying, I don't just like you as a friend, but I love you. The grace that says, you know, I don't think you deserve certain things, and humanly speaking, you probably don't, but we're going to show kindness to you anyway because you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. The grace that says, unmerited favor. You have favor with heaven, not because of anything you've ever done, but because what Christ has done. And if you've accepted that, then you know what the power of His peace is. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the fact that you haven't looked at your life close enough to say, you know what, I need a Savior, then you won't experience the peace. But if you have said, you know what, I have messed up sometimes. I have not been perfect in any stretch of the word. And yet, God has shown so much kindness to me anyway. Now, there are consequences. I understand that for sin. I understand that. But the attitude of God towards the sinner is one of unmerited kindness. Kindness you didn't deserve. I still remember many episodes in my household that illustrate this. Episodes where the tendency for parents would be to reprimand or to do that type of thing. But instead, you realize that your child doesn't necessarily need that. They know that they've done wrong, but you pull that child close to you and you say to that child a few kind words instead, and you begin to redirect that child. I can tell you right now, it's a lot more healthy and a lot more helpful sometimes than corporal punishment. I know some people don't even believe in corporal punishment at all, but as far as taking a little three- or five-year-old and now all of a sudden, you've gone from a disciplinary time with them to now they're following you around the garden picking up those little leaves and chewing on them, coming up to you and saying, Daddy, what is this? That kindness in your heart that knows that you have to reprimand, but at the same time, at the same time, that child knows you love them. That is the kind of father we're talking about here. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I'm saying I'm learning from the Heavenly Father because I didn't have a real earthly father. The closest I had was my grandfather. But as we look at this, the father brings the grace and the peace as much as the Son. The Son exhibits it. And Jesus himself said, I'm not doing these things on my own. I'm doing what I have seen my Father do. That is what I do. So when Paul says grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He recognizes that while he is imprisoned, while he is distant from friends and family, while he is distant from the very believers that have become his family, he still has a father that has enveloped him at that time. Seems pretty clear from the text. And when the father embraces you, there is peace. If you haven't felt that embrace lately, just pause some time in your study. Just pause some time in your study. Look at Jesus on the cross and recognize He's crying out to His Father and His Father's saying back through the elements of nature, I'm covering your shame. I am right there with you. Look at that beautiful portrayal in the Godhead. And just remember back, maybe, maybe not to your earthly father, because my earthly father, it was like I've said before, it was like hugging a board. I never received much like that. But look back to somebody who has embraced you during that time of need and just held you. Can you bottle that feeling up? I mean, you almost can't describe it. It's, it's some form of peace. It's some form of it's going to be okay. And that's what the Israelites believed in. They believed in a shalom that wasn't just no wars going on, but they believed in the attentive care of the Lord in their land so that they could eventually be sitting under that fig tree with their child and be spending time with their children and been spending time with them picking the grapes. And that was peace. That was seen as peace beyond just the end of the war. It was this loving, abundant life. That's why they're called the people of the vine. Israel is called a vine. And Jesus says, I am the true vine because I provide the peace beyond anything you can ever experience. And so imagine Paul being locked up, but he feels the embrace of the Father. He remembers what Jesus has done for him. He remembers that it's the Father that's really holding him at that time. And so the peace is linked to Jesus and the Father. And he goes on, I thank my God upon every remembrance and he uses a word that means monument, of you. So I think back often of you. Let's just say you spend a lot of money to erect a monument of some kind. You know, we've got plenty of them to choose from in the United States, right? You know, Mount Rushmore, you've got Statue of Liberty. You just kind of think about a few of those. Imagine the time and the effort and overall the taxing nature of some of those monuments. And yet the fond memories of some of them. And maybe you didn't build them, but you go and you experience them and you think to yourself, wow, you know, look at Abraham Lincoln's monument, for instance. The idea of, of these other monuments that have been erected in our country to represent freedom and this, this American ideal. And Paul uses a word similar in the ancient times that says, basically, you were raised up as a church, but, but I remember you often. It's like that fond monument that I go back to over and over again. When I get discouraged, I think of you. When I get discouraged, I think of my church family. That's what he's saying. And I thank my God every time I remember. If you were down and discouraged and you needed encouragement, and basically maybe even your own family disowned you, because we don't know the whole story of Paul, but imagine him all of a sudden turning sides and what that repercussions were. We have Christ records of Christians losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing their families. Roman soldiers being taken out and stripped naked and left to die on the ice and knelt down to worship Jesus. We have all kinds of records of people sacrificing for their belief in Jesus. And do you know who embraced them during those times? When their family disowned them, when their employers said, I'm not giving you anything, so you're going to go starve to death with your family. Guess who embraced them? It was the church. 
That's why the church becomes known as a koinonia, this fellowship, this close-knit unit that you don't want anything to divide. And so Paul has experienced that. And so every time he remembers the church at Philippi, the dream, the journey, the, the fact that he found, was it Lydia, I think it was, along the way, you find all these experiences coming back and he all of a sudden is enveloped with joy as well as peace. That feeling that says, wow, God, you've been so good to me. And he begins to have times of prayer, making my request for you with all, with all joy, as some translations say, or all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So he goes back to the very beginning of this experience, and he says, God, you've been so good to me. Yesterday, when I was on the phone with a dear member of the church I was baptized into, you know, my grandfather, when he passed away, it was a relief, I'll tell you that. At first, it was a relief. I was right here in the office. I was going through a bunch of stuff that I had to deal with for the week. And I still remember my little boy was having a rough day at homeschool. So he came to the office with me. He come rushing out with the phone, hands me the phone, says, it's mommy. Gives me the phone over there. And I begin right over there in the side of the sanctuary to hear the news. And at first, it was a relief. And I'll tell you why. Because he's gotten up in the ears. It's been a long journey for him. I know he's in pain a lot. I know... There's a lot of relief. But then yesterday, as I was on the phone with a member from years ago, years ago, who had wrapped their arms around me and knowing the kind of person I was, the angry person I was, and they still embraced me, I almost couldn't control myself. I mean, I almost just broke down right there. And I very rarely ever do that. I've got this, you know, strong, you know, and I, thought to, I was analyzing it later on, and the thought came to me, Murray, why, why did that hit you so hard? Why did that hit you so hard then when it didn't hit you hard? Well, we know the grief cycle, right? Some of us have studied that. There's ebbs and flows. We understand that. But for me, it was like all of a sudden it dawned on me that here's a dear woman who's been praying for me even after I left 16 years ago to go to minist begin ministry training and to pastor and all of this stuff. She's still been praying for me all along and here she is right at my moment when I need help. She's still there. She's still there. That's why it hit me so much. It's that fellowship. It's that closeness. It's beyond just family bonds. It's, it's beyond that. It's, it's something that you just can't put your finger on that, that bonds you with that other believer. That kind of person that you come across every once in a while and you know, I'm going to be with that person, Lord willing. I, I want to see that person in eternity. I want to be friends with them forever. That's the kind of fellowship he had here. And that's the kind of fellowship I continue to experience from time to time and crave even more and more as we get closer to the last day. And as a result of that relationship, Paul goes back and remembers that relationship. He remembers Jesus. You can see God encouraging him in so many ways. And he comes up with a huge statement. Something that some of us have memorized. Being confident in this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Some of you have memorized different versions. This is the one that I had looked at years ago. But notice what he says. I've looked back. I've remembered what God has done for me. I remember what, and see what he's doing for me now through you. And I'm confident. Though I'm chained, I'm confident. Though I feel like at times there's a, a valley I'm going through, I'm confident. I'm confident that he who has begun a work, good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that he's not even saying I'm confident that Jesus is going to perform a work in me until the day of Jesus Christ? He's actually trying to encourage the Philippians. 
He believes it, yeah, he knows it's for him too. But you notice he's trying to encourage the church, even when he should be the one feeling down. Shows us that he has that confidence in his life as well, even then when he was not necessarily in a situation where he should feel like it. And so the same thing happens with us. As we fellowship together, we gain that bond. We gain that bond. And we encourage each other when each other are down. And that's why those gatherings then and these gatherings now. I mean, we're like on borrowed time, folks. Deep down, just stop and ask God to show you a vision of what it's going to look like in the future, and you'll find out that it's not a very pretty picture. Go back and crack your Bible. You'll see it. It gets worse and worse. And the deep message that keeps coming to my heart is, Murray, enjoy these times now. Because we're not going to have things like this forever. We're not going to be able to get together like this forever and ever. Enjoy it. Enjoy the fellowship we have. Enjoy the closeness we can have here in this place now. And so these gatherings should point us to the day of Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Even as it is righteous for me to think this of you, all of you, uh, what is he talking about? It's righteous for him to say, I'm glad for you. And he recognizes that that church far away has him in his heart. He's in bonds. He feels like he's standing up for the gospel. And he's saying, you all are partakers of my grace. That's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, as you reread that, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace, my kindness. I think about you, even though I'm being put in this situation. So he's bound, yet he is free. He feels like at times he should be down, but strangely, this joy bubbles up. Why? Because he's got Jesus in his heart. It's unexplainable. If you've never experienced it, it's, it's pretty much spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You're, you're never going to understand it. But how could you have joy? How could you have joy when everything around you tells you to be sorrowful? It's only through Jesus that we have that. And so as I read that text in my study, I just said, all right, how much more so today do we need this inward joy, right? Do we need this inward joy today? I'd say so. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've turned off, I've turned off watching that news. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. And you look at everything that's going around in the world, it's just like, wow, are you kidding me? The stress, the hardship, the sorrow, the different concerns. Don't become a hermit, but don't let it control your mind. You don't have to be bound by all of that. I don't get excited by the T man on TV. I get excited about Jesus Christ in my study. And so this week, I was over at uh, the Dodge dealership. They had a warranty thing I had to deal with. It's amazing. You can buy a vehicle, and the next thing you know, you get off a lot, and these warranty recalls start coming at you. And you're like, well, I just paid all this money for this vehicle. Now I've got to take it back, you know? And i got to spend, and then you get back. And they don't have the part for some reason. They scheduled you the appointment, and they don't have the part. And you're like, all right, let's schedule another appointment, and let's get the part. You come back there, and, well, they make you wait for quite a while, don't they? And you're thinking, well, we had this 2 o'clock appointment, and it turns into 3. And one guy, I guess, he said he was there for four hours, you know, just waiting around. So I went ahead and pulled off away from the group that was talking about how long they had been there for. 
And I pulled off into this little, this little study station there at the Dodge dealership. They call it like a business center, and they've got these little cubicle rooms. And I'm sitting there, and I'm processing a lot of things, especially in my own personal life that had happened this week. And I could see just in the distance Mount Lassen. And this is what, kind of what Paul's talking about here, is that yes, in the current situation you're in, it could feel a certain way, but look beyond it. And so I'm looking at Lassen, and I'm remembering this picture here. I couldn't see Lassen that closely. There's no way my human eye could stretch like that. But I remember this joyful day that I had as we went up to Mount Lassen, and we're standing right there looking at this mountain covered in snow. I mean, the joyful feeling of, hey, finally we got some snow. The joyful feeling of, wow, it's going to be a hopefully a good summer, but also just the fresh air, the joy of being with family and friends. It's your focus during those times that really can shift the experience. And so I found that joy there, and we find Paul found that joy back in his day, that though he was lost, he found joy in Jesus and freedom in the Spirit. And Philippians doesn't end there. Paul goes well beyond just looking at some church in Philippi miles away. He looks beyond that to the fact that a harvest is coming and that this world as we know it is going to be done away with. Look at it in Philippians 1.8. It says, For God is my witness how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Whoa there. It's like King James Version. Let's get another one up there. But that word was interesting to follow it back into the Old English and then follow it over to Greek. Greek, of course, being the original. And that's interesting. This deep down yearning desire. I don't know very many of experiences that I could describe that with. It's more than just desiring something. It's more than just, it's almost like a, a wishful feeling that if that particular thing that you were wanting to take place would take place, that a peace could come over you. It's like a deep, it's hard to describe in the Greek language, this deep yearning that Jesus only produces. And so Paul says, God is my witness how greatly I long after you. I want, I want something so deep for you. And he prays for them that their love may abound more and more in the full knowledge and in all perception. What is his full knowledge? He yearns, I'll put the word yearning in it, yearning of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ yearn for? Can you imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What's he yearning for? He's wanting us to be with him. You imagine him back in the, before that, even the temptations, where he has to keep saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. What's he yearning for? He's offered all the kingdoms of the world. He's, shown up, he's basically taken up in, whether you think it's figurative or vision, whatever you want to do it, he's taken up and he's shown all the kingdoms of the world. What's his goal? He's to, his goal is to save all the kingdoms of the world. What's his yearning? He, he would love to give in to that. I mean, you, you find as the Savior giving in to that. But he knows that if he bows down and worships Satan, he basically forfeits that. Even though it could be he wouldn't have to go to the cross. So he yearns for people to be saved, but he knows there's a way that has to go about doing it. What does he also yearn for when he gets to the cross? My Father, forgive them. He wants everybody to f- experience that forgiveness. Were they all willing to? Go, go back a few chapters before that. Matthew 23-26, to 26, you'll find he says, I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. 
So there had to be a willingness of Jerusalem. And he, can you imagine, just him saying that shows you that he yearned for them all to be gathered. Imagine the one who had been trained to be the religious leader. And that religious leader got to the point where they didn't care about anything but money. And it was all about the nickel and dime stuff out there in the foyer or something. You know, it's, it's just, they were so focused on the business element of it that they didn't even care about the people anymore. They would basically get to the point where the, the sick and the infirm were not welcome there. And here Jesus is casting out the money changers. And he's not necessarily just doing it to throw them away. He's doing it to make a point. The point is, I'm yearning for, for these people to be saved. And the little children come, and they start singing songs. Hosanna to the son of David. And they say, shut those little children's mouths. And what does Jesus say? He quotes a scripture that basically says the, the rocks would cry out. And what you find in that scripture is, if you keep reading, it, it describes how basically the enemies of God, it mentions the enemies of God later on. So he's telling them, lacing it in there, don't silence the children. Or you'll become an enemy of God. And so we find all of this yearning language in this text of Paul. And he's telling the Philippians, I have that same yearning for you. I want you all to be saved. I want you all to be there on that day. I want you all to have this full knowledge of Jesus. This full knowledge of Jesus. I don't think we're ever going to attain that this side of the new earth. I mean, think about it. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in the coming ages, we'll still be unpacking his grace. So he wants them to keep knowing Jesus, so they can discern what's going to go on around them and can guide them through to the next part of the text. Because in Philippians 1 verse 10, that you may distinguish between things that differ or, or cause differences, that you may be sincere without offense. That's causing someone to stumble unintentionally. Excuse me, intentionally. It's like, you know, someone's walking by and you're like, and the, <laughs> down they go, right? Uh, so Paul's saying, you don't want to do that. We want to have no partiality. We want to be able to not take offense until the day of Jesus Christ, all the way through to the end. He, he pictures the church continuing. He pictures them having this knowledge of Jesus, this yearning in their heart for each other and for Jesus, and them being sincere and getting along with each other all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. And what's the result? The fruits of righteousness through Jesus. It's a harvest. A harvest is the result. For when you have fruit, that means that for instance, in a tree situation, right now I've got peach curl all over the place, and I've got some ways of dealing with it. But as I'm looking at those trees, I'm thinking, wow, look at all these little, and they've gone from flower to fruit, some of them. And you're thinking to yourself, that tree is not going to support 50 pieces. It's just a starter tree anyway. 50 pieces of fruit, there's no way. So you're going to have to pluck a few off every once in a while once you see what kind of condition they're going to be in. And then eventually you pull that piece of apricot off when it's nice and ripe and you enjoy the fruit. And that's an agrarian practice. The fruit of Jesus Christ means that basically we each become a tree of life. A tree that has fruit. A tree that produces life, which then shows that we have rejected another way. We're not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's why I keep saying, don't spend a lot of time looking at all that stuff. Spend time looking at Christ, and you'll find this tree of life produces fruit of life. And so Paul wants that to take place. He wants it to be the point where Jesus comes, and that righteousness of Jesus, that Jesus in their hearts 
has actually produced fruit at the end of time. And that can only happen when you're connected. There I was out in my, once again, pruning. And as you're pruning some of these things during the pruning season, you look at some branches that got bent, right? And snapped off by the sheep, for instance. That's what happens at my house sometimes. And so the sheep went through and decimated part of my front yard, especially the, the, anything that had leaves on it. And you can look, go behind them and see branches snapped off. Now, that branch is not going to produce anything after that. You've got to trim the thing off. You, you, you're pruning. And as much as you'd like to somehow put it back together after it's gone and de- died, you're just not going to do it. And so we find this same thing as well. We have to remain connected with Christ through everything that's going on. Otherwise, there will be no fruit. And so fruit only happens when we stay connected with Him. That's what we've been talking about for the last quarter, is this idea of spending time with Jesus. That's what Brother Gottke talked about last week from Red Bluff. He came and shared with us, spending that time with Jesus, whether you're witnessing, whether you're spending it in your study, whether you're praying for somebody. He listed a whole bunch of ways that we could spend time with Jesus. From the beginning of the Bible down to the end. He did a beautiful survey of that. What Paul's saying is, you're not going to have that fruit unless you're connected to the knowledge of Jesus. Well, what leads up to the harvest? You all want end-time scenarios sometimes? Well, if you look at Revelation 18, verse 1, the earth is lightened with His glory. What is the glory of God? Now, we'll say commandments, we'll say different things. Go back to Exodus 34, you'll find what is the Lord's character? It's, it's actually a, a complete character. It's not just, all right, I'm going to, he's merciful, kind, patient, long-suffering, you know, all those types of things. But it also m- mentions holding, having justice as well. So you find there, there's this interesting blend. The world at the end of time knows Jesus, in, excuse me, the church at the end of time, the true church, knows Jesus, he's in their heart, and that character is somehow, as you continue to behold it, it lightens the world with His glory. That connection brings about fruit at the end of time. That's why Jesus in Revelation chapter 19, which I wrote down to look it up, is described, if you look at Revelation chapter 19 and Him coming, it's an interesting description. This rider on a white horse, and as you keep reading on down here, what happens at the end of time? There's a gathering that takes place. you got the armies of heaven. They were following him in verse 14. You find out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which with to strike down the nations, he rules them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a couple of different harvests at the end of time. There's the harvest of the ones who the angels come and gather, and there's the harvest of this pressing that goes on, this judgment of the nations that takes place. I mean, how can Jesus be both? Well, at a certain point, he says enough. It may take a long time for him to get to that point, but you find at a certain point, he does say enough, and he comes and he, it says an angel stands in the sun, cries with a loud voice, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, horses, riders, flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great, and it mentions the beast after that. Really, the dividing thing at the end of time, though we mentioned the Sabbath as part of it, that's true, is whether or not you truly know Jesus Christ. If the fruit of your life is of such that he is going to harvest for his harvest, or is it of such that it's going to be pressed down in this judgment? 
So I want that Word Himself in my life. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. He made all things. I want that Creator who, who programmed this beautiful Word picture in nature of fruit, harvest, all of that. I want Him in my life. Each day. I ask Him into my life each day. You almost get to the point where you know He's there and you don't always have to ask all the time too. But it's nice to invite Him into your life. So I believe He's coming. I believe He's coming to harvest the world. There will be a harvest. And the question is, what am I going to be doing on the, last, the day of Jesus Christ? Well, Philippians 1.9. I'm going to abound in more and more in the full knowledge of Jesus. I'm also going to do what Matthew 24 and Revelation 14 says. I'm going to be sharing that beautiful message of the Creator. And that's kind of where we come to today. That's what I'm going to be doing. But as a church, we're all going to be challenged to do something in our own way as well. Uh, we have that officer list that we put in the bulletin. I believe we're all going to be needed in some way. You all have gifts. You all have talents. You all have ways of sharing that I, don't, I can't share. I'm just more likely sometimes a, a, just someone here to remind you. That's, that's basically my job. But when we leave this place, we're all going to be needed in some way to share this gospel if it's really going to take root the way Jesus wants it to. And that's why the church believes in this idea of, of different gifts. That's what your scripture reading. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians, it goes on to tell you that. And like Philippi, the, the, the group of believers there, I'm grateful that people took time to share with me. And my father wasn't there much. But there were others who stood in the gap and said, you know what, you're not going the right way. You know what, you need to think about this or that. Or, you know what, you did a good job there. There were words of encouragement, words of challenge as well. People that stood in the gap for me. And I, in turn, decided, you know what, I'm going to try to do the best I can. I, I want to try to not just walk by my neighbor's house and not ever interact with them. I want to be able to know them. And just the other day when my neighbor was out trimming his peach curl off his tree. We walked over, we talked to each other, and it wasn't anything necessarily downright spiritual, like, hey, i got a sermon to tell you. It was more like just being there to listen to the guy. The widower who has nobody around very much. Is that sharing the gospel? Just listening sometimes? It can be. And I think we as a church have plenty of things to invite people to. You've got your weekly service here, Spanish and English. You've got food and clothing that you give away. You've got the annex that offers different seminars to people in the community. You've got the study groups. You've got that concert on your sign out there. You've got the dinner with the doctor program. You've got a whole list of things that are going on here. Rightfully so, support them as much as you can. And at the end of this month, like we've mentioned, that whole Shadow Empire series. And those prayer cards are there for you to have in your time with Jesus and to say, all right, who can I invite to this place where we have time? Who can I invite who might be interested in history, quite a bit of it in there, might be interested in the Bible, knowing more about what true Christianity looks like. What can we do about that? That is all of us working together and sharing if we can. Don't ruin your relationship to share with them, though. Pray about it and say, Lord, put somebody on my heart that I can really talk to who's already open for you and do that. And today we have some others who have different offices than I do that I want to recognize. Um, we have deacons and deaconesses, some of which have been serving you guys for years. And I would like to take time to recognize them today. They serve in many ways. Uh, you, you find your deacons, your elders are visiting people. 
They're trying to figure out physical needs that people have. They're trying to help wherever it's needed. And I believe they're worthy of, of recognition, not necessarily because they need it, but because I think as a group, we can hold them up in prayer, uh, worthy of respect. God, the Bible talks about this double honor idea. And so today we're going to gather some of them in front of you here. And, it, and as you watch us elders pray for them, just realize also we're praying for you, that God will guide your ministry, will guide your way until the day of Jesus Christ. So I've got a list of them here. And it looks like I've got another one over here that somebody dropped off for me. So I know, Althea, we had you up here. We prayed for you before, but I wanted to have you up here with the group. And so I'm going to invite Althea up, Sylvia, um, Amelia, if she's here, Evelyn Baxter, Phoebe, May Reyes, Larry. Are you still back there, Larry? Come on up. Jean, and then is Ron here today? I don't see him here today. So if I called your name, feel free to come up. And then I'm going to invite the elders to come to the front as well and to have prayer with you. This is, instead of like throwing in the announcements time, I wanted the sermon to build up to the point where we're saying we're all in this together. We're all going to be sharing into the day of Jesus Christ. And we want to recognize what you've done for the Lord already. So let me try to hand some of these out while I have you here. There's Larry's. Is May here? Bert, is May over here or is she back there? Why don't you go grab her? Oh, someone's grabbing her? Okay. Phoebe, I'll give this to you. I'll let you hold on to those so that I can have my hand free. So we've got two here left. We'll have... Alan, can you give this one to May when she comes in? We'll wait for her. It's one of those behind-the-scenes jobs where someone's working on the fellowship meal, too. You don't always appreciate that, so... Yes, yes. So as elders, we wanted to thank you guys for your service. You, we see you as part of our team. Uh, we know some of you go with us on the visitation Sabbaths. We know that you're here taking care of the building and lots of things that sometimes go unnoticed. And the Bible does talk about this idea of, of not just having local elders, but also deacons as well. And we are including deaconesses in this as well. And the church manual mentions this idea of ordaining uh, both deacons and deaconesses. And so we want to recognize you this morning with that. And so we want you to keep that certificate as just appreciation. Put it up on the wall somewhere and remember that we're praying for you. Pray for us as well. So we're going to gather you guys together here a little bit closer together. And I'm going to invite, I'm going to grab this microphone, the green one over here. That's okay, Chris. Uriel, could you pray and Alan as well? And then I'll pray. Let us pray. Father God, King of glory, you have a mission to accomplish in this earth, and you have gathered individuals, deacons, deaconesses, for your service. We thank you for the ministry that you have committed to them. We know that you're in control of all things, and you desire us to work with you, because you 
are the one who gives us the strength to accomplish tasks that you ask us to do. So in a very special way, we ask for your hand of mercy and grace and power upon this group here. May your name be exalted and may your work, Lord, be fully, be fully accomplished, we pray, even here in this church and in our neighborhood. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, as we've heard the importance of the church, those who are called out from the world, there are those who are especially called out to do a special work. And we ask your blessing upon these here, Father, that you may not only bless them, but that they through you may bless others and that more and more can bring praise and honor and glory to your name is our prayer in Jesus' name. Father, thank you so much for the dedication of each person here in this room and this group here as well. We, we know that we are a ministry of all believers. We know that there are different tasks and things to be accomplished. We're thankful, Lord, for the strength and the energy you've given this group so far. Continue to bless them lead them, guide them here at the church as well as at home, guide them as they're in the community. May they be witnesses for you. May we all be witnesses for you. We dedicate them to you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. So up until the end of time, when Jesus does come and that harvest scene does take place, and really the fulfillment of our hearts overflows into joy unspeakable, we're going to recognize we need Jesus every hour up to that point. And so whether you're a deacon, whether you're other ministry leader, whether you're a congregant, uh, we're all ministry, we're all members in ministry. Different functions, but we're all going to need Jesus to do those functions. So let's stand and let's sing this song. Number 483, I need thee every hour.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for the words of Paul that encourage us that you're right there, you're our Father, even when there are times when we feel all alone. And you can encircle us with your arms of love and you can guide us all the way to that wonderful day of Jesus Christ. May he be in our hearts and in our lives until that day, we pray in his name. Amen.